This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. You may have heard me talk on this show before about the valley of the shadow of debt. That's right. Most young people, they get to the edge of a precipice. They see across the other side opportunity. They see, they're hearing all the time about the amazing things being done, businesses being started, apps being built, software, hardware, you name it. There's opportunity everywhere and businesses are hungry. They see it, but they're looking over a canyon. They're looking across college chasm. They look down to the bottom of that chasm and there's all these colleges and universities and they're supposed to go way down there into the muck, into the valley of the shadow of debt and get stuck for five plus years on average and walk away with an average of $37,000 in debt. Oh, and not only that, but 62% of graduates are either unemployed or working in jobs that didn't require a degree anyway. So after five years and $37,000 of debt that you can never get rid of, you're working in a job that you could have gotten without it, something's not right. Skip the valley of the shadow of debt. Praxis builds a bridge directly to those opportunities right now today. And if you're already in that valley, don't worry. We can help you too. We can throw you a lifeline. We can pull you up right now. If you already graduated college, don't think about grad school until you've gotten into the real world. If you're a couple years in and you're bored, Don't fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy and think that because you've wasted some time and money, you've got to waste more. Get out now, get into an amazing career at an amazing startup, learn more about yourself in the world than you ever could down in that valley. Praxis is the bridge to get you from where you are to a life that you love. Our mission, our why, the reason we exist is to help young people discover and do what makes them come alive. And we can do it better, faster, cheaper than anything else. Discoverpraxis.com. Check it out today. Oh, good afternoon, TK Coleman. So I got a text message from somebody um, and I thought this was interesting because this is something that I've dealt with a lot and I think you have too. He said, hey, I know somebody, uh, I'm not going to say any names here to to protect the, the innocent. I know somebody who's close to me and really has no motivation to do anything valuable and just really is sucked into video games. I want nothing more than to help this person find their passion and really unlock some ambition that I know is there. But I'm not really sure how to do it besides simply talking about getting stuff done. Do you have any advice in helping unlock those doors for people? I know him pretty well, but just don't know how to go about it properly. And this is, I mean, I've I've been there. You know, there's somebody that you know what's there. You know how much potential they have. You know that like they just, if they, if they got that mindset, if they discovered some of the ideas that, that you've discovered that helped you kind of come alive and you want that for them so badly. So uh, up until maybe a couple of years ago, I would have responded very, very differently, but I responded, man, that's tough. I feel like the initiation has to come from him. The best thing you can do is model it and not let him pick up any judgy vibe from you. If he doesn't feel any pressure from you, 
but watches you and feels inspired by you, he might start asking you questions. He needs to open the door. No book recommendations, article recommendations, podcast recommendations, life recommendations, unless he asks. It's hard, but pushing at a closed door normally doesn't work. How would you, how would you respond to that similar situation? Someone in your life, you know, when, this usually happens once you start to, whether it's get your health together or your mental health or your work life, once you start to discover and do what makes you come alive, to start to live on purpose, to get off the conveyor belt, all the things we talk about that, to emancipate yourself. And then you see someone you really love and care about and you see them struggling and you know that what you've discovered will help them and you know they have the potential to be awesome, but they're not coming to you seeking it. How do you go about dealing with it? Do you try to drop little hints? Hey man, you might like this book. You might like this podcast. What, what do you do, TK? You know, it's interesting, but, you know, my belief is that you have to earn the right to speak truth into people's lives. You have to earn the right to give people advice. It's easy to look at people living and living in a way that makes us feel like, oh, they're not rising to the occasion of their full potential. Um, and it's easy to just sort of want to be the spokesperson for truth, right, and tell them how they need to live. But the more difficult thing is to put yourself in a position relationally where you really earn that right to be heard. John Maxwell, in, in a book called uh, The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, he says, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And, 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 and this, if you understand that statement, it'll make sense as to why people often take advice from the people they should never listen to. For instance, every parent has struggled before, or at least most of them have struggled before, with giving advice to their kids about what the right thing to do is, and yet that kid will go listen to someone else that's just irresponsible, that they should never listen to for no other reason than that that person made that kid feel cool. They made that kid feel loved. People are much more receptive to hearing what you have to say when they know how much you care. So how do you apply that in this situation? Because obviously the person wouldn't be asking the question unless they did care. But, but look at where the question is coming from. The question is coming from a place of observing the way a person is behaving and then judging that behavior by saying, well, they're not being constructive. They're not being productive. Well, instead of sitting back, judging that person's behavior and then trying to figure out what's the best way to give them advice, try, try the opposite approach, which is understanding what drives their current behavior. Instead of saying, how can I figure out how to get them to listen to my advice, ask yourself, how can I express interest in this person and get to know what currently drives them? So if they spend all their time playing video games, ask them what their favorite video game is. Instead of trying to get them to stop, have them explain that video game to you. You might learn an awful lot about that person. There might be a very good reason why they enjoy that video game. And in the process of telling you why they love video games in general so much, why they love the particular game they're spending all their time on so much, they will reveal very valuable things to you about what it is that's missing from their lives, what it is that fires them up. And you might put yourself in a position where you can give them advice that's based on their goals and their interests rather than your general idea that they could be doing something better. Does that make sense? I disagree. I completely you disagree? disagree. Yep. All right. Let's, let's, let's go back and forth. I want to hear what you got to say. Because your, your fundamental approach is this, this sappy Maxwell quote um, that obviously there's some, some truth to it, uh, certainly. But 
you first you got to care. You got to show them that you care. I completely disagree. I think it's the opposite. I think the problem is that you care too much. You have to truly not care. You have to stop caring what that person does with their life. You have to stop being concerned and stop worrying about their choices. And you have to completely not care. Man, you can play video games all day if you want to. You can mope and complain about being unhappy, be depressed. You can do all those things. It's not my life. It's your life. And truly feel like you're going to be okay no matter what they choose. You don't need them to do anything for you to be happy. Because what we typically call care is more you care because you aren't able to really be happy until someone else is a certain way. This is not too different from what we talked about with the, on the previous episode with uh, you know, romantic dating relationships. You have to truly not care. And once you don't care, now there's no hint of judgment. Because saying, okay, they're really into video games. That concerns me. But let me try to understand them being into video games. Let me say, hey, buddy. Tell me about your video game over here. Let, let me be interested in that. There's a sense of you're doing it because you hope that it will lead to them opening up to you and then you being able to help them or because you care so much. They can smell that. They can sense that. I think it's going to make you frustrated if it doesn't result in what you want, even if it does and it results in them opening up to you and then you giving them a book recommendation. Then you're going to be bitter if they don't act on it because you need it too much. You care too much. You have to truly not care and go about, how's it going, man? Like, I don't need you to be a better version of yourself. I don't, it doesn't pain me that you've made the choices you have in your life. I don't give a damn. Honestly, I'm totally fine. And then once you don't care, they're going to see you and they're going to see your life. And they're going to be like, hey, I've noticed like in the last year, you have really kind of pulled your stuff together. Like you, you seem pretty inspired. T tell me more about this. And they're going to want to come to you. And now the, all the pressure of judgment, I mean, it's just like this with kids. When you're worried about your kid because of the habits that they're developing or the things that they like or they're not reading enough or whatever, there's no amount of, well, let me be in their level and pretend to be interested in the things that they do like in hopes that that will lead them to want to read more books. It never works. You have to be like, they're their own autonomous person. I love them and I'm going to be happy no matter what they choose because I am capable of both loving them and being happy no matter what choices they make, those aren't my choices. I can't own it. And, and right, then so they start to come. So I, I don't think with cleverness and care, you can go and nudge the door open and then stick in some literature. You can't go unless the door is open, unless they're saying, hey, come in. I want your book recommendations. I think preaching to anyone but the choir is a fool's errand. All right. So I agree with everything that you said, 100 percent. And I still stand by everything that I just said, 100 percent. So, 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 let, so, 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 Smith here. Look, right, right. I like Isaac Morehouse. I agree <laughs> with the man 100 percent of the time. With that having been said. <laughs> Without a shadow of doubt, everything that you said is absolutely correct. I could not find a single flaw in any of your words if I spent the next 100 years trying to do so. With that being said, what you said was absolutely incredibly ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So let me break this down. First of all, let, let, let's get let's get precise on the semantics here. If by the word care, like care for someone, we mean something along the lines of feel warm and fuzzy feelings about that person, then that's just a sappy, meaningless quote. And everything that you could ever possibly learn from a self-help book has just instantly become meaningless. Also, it's very well maybe the case. 
if, if, <laughs> if by the word care we mean something like pretend that you care when you really don't don't as some sort of psychological manipulation strategy to get a person to do what you want to do, then again, we, we would, we would definitely have a problem because what I just said wouldn't work. Well, the the danger is the danger with that one is that it does work sometimes, but that it's going to warp things over the long term. But yes, continue. Fair enough. But here's the important thing that I want to say about care. There's a difference between caring about your goals for a person and caring about another person's goals for themselves. Yes. And I think I think to truly care for someone, to truly love love someone is to not say, hey, here's my definition of what a good life should be for you. And I'm going to try to use manipulation strategies to get you get you there to truly care for someone is to say, I am interested in you and what you want. So you and I have talked about this a lot. When we talk about the philosophy of education, there are so many teachers out there who are constantly worried that kids aren't learning the things that they want them to learn, right? Kids aren't interested in math. Kids aren't interested in history. And so they're constantly struggling to find different kinds of tactics and strategies that they can use to trick the kids to become interested in the responsible things like history or math when the kid is really interested in things like playing with Barbie dolls or playing tag or playing video games. And what I'm saying is, Instead of trying to get that person interested in what you think is best for them, actually care about them, not as some pretend game don't, to not manipulate like, them. Not like let's let's use playing tag as a way to sneak in geography because that's what I think you really need to learn. Right. Like like my goal for you in life is to, you know, go to college and get a degree or be an engineer. And I know right now you're interested in video games. So if I pretend like I care about that, maybe I can somehow trick you into a conversation that will get you on the path I think you ought to be on. No. What I'm saying is if that person is interested in video games and that's all they want to do, that's all they want to do for a reason. And if you genuinely care about them, you'll show more interest in getting to know what they care about and why they care about it than in trying to get them to go along with your agenda. So I, I think the problem of this question is that it's based on a, on a judgment using an unfair standard. You're looking at someone's life and you're saying they're not being productive based on what I think they ought to do. But why, why not talk to that person and get to know them? Obviously, they see value in playing video games. And if you talk to them, you'll find out one of two things. Either there's something that really fires them up and they're using video games to run away from it, which will be very useful knowledge for you if you really care about them getting what they want out of life. Or there's something you're not seeing in the video games that they see and you might be able to help them get a fuller broader experience out of that. Either way, you're helping move that person towards their purpose. But you got to let down the judgment and stop being in a rush to preach to them what you know, and you got to care about what they're up to and why they're into it. So that's as, the way. As per usual, you you disappointed me and all of our listeners by diffusing the apparent uh, disagreement that we had and revealing to us that it, it really wasn't much of a disagreement over anything but semantics because uh, I was really hoping to manufacture some some drama. Um, <laughs> the only you know, the only way that I think we've ever been able to have sustained disagreement is when it's involved Derek Rose and the Chicago Bulls. And now that he's not there anymore, like you're happy you don't mind me insulting him. So that's kind of all faded away. Um, but to but to take this question and say the question that I was posed that I was texted. The way that both of us kind of responded to that I think is true and I think is a challenge but it's also a little bit too easy because in the real world this this is a very hard situation because I guess I would say 
with what you just said, it's very clear your your definition of care, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is to care about that person succeeding at their goals, not them succeeding at your goals. But then you're in this situation where at a given snapshot in someone's life, they have no goals or they don't know what their goals are. They don't know what they want to be. They don't know what will make them happy. And even if you care for them based entirely on you want them to succeed by their own definition of success, if they're in that challenging moment where they don't have a definition of success or they're unaware of what success looks like for them, that's when the real challenge comes. Because if you're willing to say, look, I don't even know, I have no idea what a fulfilling life would look like for you. I have no specific activities to recommend, no specific books, no career trajectory you should pursue because I'm not you. And I fully respect you need to have that self-discovery. But, and I'm, and I'm waiting to cheer you on whenever it is you figure out, this is what I think is going to make me happier. But until you figured that out, it's really challenging as someone to be like, Hey, I know what helped me figure out my own goals and my own definition of success. I want to help you figure that out because it's, it's that fine line where you don't, you're, you're past the point, which is very hard to get past by the way. And, and check yourself to make sure you are past this point. You're past the point of being worried about them because they're not succeeding on your definition. You really don't care what they do. You genuinely only care that they're happy doing it. You really don't care if they're homeless and they, they look like a bum, but they're totally fulfilled internally. You would genuinely be happy for them. You just want their actual happiness on their terms, but their struggle is figuring out what makes them happy. And you feel like you could help with that, but they're not asking you to, what do you, what do you do in that situation? I still don't like I still don't like the um, the framework of this question. There's still something about this question that just sounds like, how can I take control of another person's life and get them to be as motivated as I want them to be? And, and, and I just have a, a major problem with that kind of approach. I don't think you need to know how to tell another person to be successful, because even if another person doesn't have a definition of success, that person has a sense of what they like and what they don't like. That but, person but has a sense. But certainly many people are unaware of that. Like I know a lot of people have come to you and been like, I'm just not fulfilled, but I don't know what would make me fulfilled. I don't think anybody's unaware of that actually. I, I don't think Come there's on. a single person. You haven't nope. struggled with that yourself? Nope. I mean like to me, that's, nope. that is the process. That's what life is, is the process of cutting through your own BS, cutting through all the pretend things you tell yourself that would make you fulfilled. And they're really just that, things that you've come up with because you think you're supposed to or other people have or you wish you were that way. And every day learning more and more about your actual preferences, your actual true self, which is not easy to discover and living in accordance with what you find. That's hard. Like, I don't know today, I'm not entirely positive if the next meeting I have, if that's really what I wanna be doing or was there some, am I choosing that because of some lack of self-knowledge? It's a constant discovery process, is it not? Look, 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 I think there's an important distinction that get, that gets missed out and is the cause of much confusion. I think there's a difference between desire and methodology. Right. So desire is what you want. Methodology is your strategy for how you're going to get it, 
Or, or we could also make a distinction between desire and beliefs that you have about the rightness of that desire or the best way to go about fulfilling that desire. The confusion that comes in when people think about desire, it's not in knowing what they want. You know what's hot to you and you know what's cold to you. You know what feels good to you and you know what feels bad to you. And and this is unmediated knowledge. You, you know it through direct experience. And I don't think there's a person on this planet that's confused about that at all. However, what does get confusing is when we bring in a, a Another set of questions like, is it okay for me to want this? Is it okay for me to pursue this? Can I make any money doing this? Can I build a career out of this? That's the hard part, right? And that takes a lot of time, a lot of patience, a lot of investigation, a lot of experimentation. I would agree that those are not easy questions to answer. But I also don't think you need to feel pressure about helping people get answers to those questions overnight. I, I think that people know what they want and they know what they desire. And, and, and going back to this whole John Max Maxwell idea, I truly believe, and this is based on my experience, this is based on my observations, that you can help a person 10 times more simply by listening to them talk about their desire without even trying to figure out how to help them fulfill it than by trying to come up with the best method for making them more motivated in accordance with what your own concept of a motivated life looks like. All right, so listening to people talk can help them 10 times more than trying to tell them. I'm going to I'm going to go I'm going to one up you, dude. Forget listening go for to it. them talk. Living your own life in accordance with your own desires, living as a genuine true person can help them 20 times as much. <laughs> I, I, I totally, I, I totally I think, agree. I totally agree. And I, and I think we're completely of the same page here that you can't, you can't knock on doors and be like, you know, hello, I would like to tell you about the glories of living a self-determined life and get anywhere. I don't think you can go to those people in your life that you care about and say, Hey, you should read this book. It would really open. You should listen to this podcast. I think it would help you become motivated. You, like giving those little hints, it's like leaving a Jesus tract in a public bathroom. You know, those ones that look like a $20 bill and then you pick it up and it's like, surprise, I'm giving you something more valuable than money. The word of the Lord. And people are just like pissed off, you know, like unless they're asking for it, you can't. You just can't. You got to be like, look, if they're languishing, I got to let them languish. If if I live my life in a way that doesn't make them feel judged, but that represents the possibilities that happen when you start to have uh, uh, d discontent, optimism, and an outlook of self-determination and whatever, and they see that, light attracts the eye, as Leonard Reed used to say. They're going to start to notice, and they're going to start to come. And then eventually they might be like, hey, man, what's like a book that you like to read? It's amazing how that happens. So living that example. And then and then when they do show that willingness to engage, that's when I think when they when they see you and they show the first sign of wanting to know as the Bible says, the reason for the joy you have, to, to, to put it in those terms, then is when listening matters a ton. Then is when you're tempted to be like, let me tell you, and you give them like 10 books to read and all the things that change your life, that, then it's overwhelming and they'll run away. But then is when you say, like, leave a little mystery in it. Be like, yeah, yeah, I've just, you know, kind of been doing a little soul searching, whatever. Well, well tell me about you. What, what made you. what made you ask me? You know, and turn it back around and start asking and listening to them. Okay, so... I agree with that 100%, and I believe that you can have much greater influence by living a life in accordance with your ideals than by preaching it all the time, whether people are uh, are listening or not. And, 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 and this kind of relates to, in Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art, 
he he has that chapter where he talks about the idea of leaving your buddy behind and how sometimes that's the most loving thing you can do. He talks about how in, in every movie where there's some kind of prison break and you have two buddies that break out of jail together and they're running and, and as they're trying to get away, they hop a fence and there's always that one buddy that gets his jeans caught on the fence, right? And it's like, the part oh. where you tell me that you're launching your own podcast without me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> So I, I would like to announce <laughs> that starting today, I've outgrown you, Isaac. <laughs> you know, but but what 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 Pressfield says is you got to make a break for it, man. Because if you can get free, you can always come back and try to bust your buddy out again. But if you stay behind and you don't allow yourself to move forward, unless everybody you love also moves forward, you're gonna get stuck. You know, and you can't make Swallow anybody a else driver in a cake. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but you know what? I want to go back to the conversation element, man, because I approach a lot of this from a coaching perspective. I mean, this is a big role that I play in Praxis. It's a big role that I play in a lot of my relationships. And I find that a lot of people don't give themselves permission to desire things. And I have experienced over and over again the liberating power of simply being interested in people according to their own terms. You'll be amazed at how many people out there know exactly what they want, but they feel like they don't have the right to pursue it because it's stupid to want that sort of thing. I mean, I think it's a major epidemic that there are people in this world who are ashamed of their desires. They don't want they they can't admit to themselves and others that they want a lot of money because well, even, they believe that's the wrong to want. It's funny, uh, which happened to be the example used, but the number of people who will be like, oh, I'm not really interested in like some kind of career in education. Honestly, I just want I just love video games. That's all I care about. And they kind of say in like a self-deprecating way. And it's like the video game industry is the future of art and entertainment. It is one of the fastest growing industries. It you know what I mean? Like nobody yeah. says, "Oh, I'm just interested in accounting." Oh, silly old me. Even though the video game industry has like far more upward potential than something like finance and accounting, but it's just it's they feel that because they want it, because it's easy for them and it's fun for them, because it's not listed in a course curriculum at a school that's boring and painful, therefore they should kind of feel bad about it like they're a slacker. And we have a lot of societal pressure that tempts us, you know, that, that kind of reinforces that perspective. So the, the, the question that you're raising, it even has some of that, right? You have one person who loves another person. They see the person that they're that they love spend, you know, spend all their time playing video games. And, and, and there's there's a kind of judgment going on, like your, your life shouldn't be about this. There's something bad with this. But but how do we know that for all we know? That could be that person's path to fulfillment or riches or whatever it is they want in life. Video games could be the way. But we're constantly bombarded with all sorts of judgments about what we should desire, what we shouldn't desire, what's too superficial. And I find that most people that I talk to can't even admit what they want to themselves. They just can't admit it because they're ashamed of, them, of it. I mean, there are people who want to be actors. They want to be singers. They want to be millionaires. There are people who don't even want, they don't even have any big dream like that, but they just want to have a family. I just want to have children, but they're ashamed to say it because, because they're measuring themselves according to some other standard. So I have experienced a lot of liberating power. And, and I send this as a message out to everyone who feels like, you have someone in your life that you really care about and you feel like they're not sufficiently motivated. Yes, live your life according to your own values and inspire them by action. But 
how about taking a break from trying to figure out the best way to motivate them and love that person just by being interested in them. Let them talk about what they love doing without giving off that vibration of someone who says, I'm only trying to figure out you know, why you love video games so much so I can convince you to stop playing it. Be genuinely interested in people and you'll be amazed at how much you'll give people the permission to just be themselves. And often the answer to how to fulfill desire comes from the result of just owning the desire, being honest with yourself about what you want. Let's talk about a totally different topic. Let's talk about authority. Respect my authority. <laughs> I don't even. I don't really watch South Park, but I've seen a, a clip of uh, Cartman with sunglasses, like a cop. Greatest <laughs> line ever. Um, let's talk about authorita. You wrote a blog post a week or two ago, which is really brilliant. Um, it's called Eight Observations About Jesus and Politics," and it's not a particularly religious post, um, although it does, I think, raise some very important observations that have implications for Christians in particular, but I'm going to just read the eight observations that you made. Mm -hmm. And then one of the responses that, that we saw on this observation, number one, Oh, you start with a, a verse that, uh, this is a, one of my favorite verses at that very hour, some Pharisees came to Jesus and told him, leave this place and get away because Herod wants to kill you. But Jesus replied, go tell that Fox, look, I will keep driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. Observation number one, Herod was a politician. Observation number two, Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Observation number three, Herod had the political clout to kill Jesus. Observation number four, Jesus showed no signs of being intimidated by Herod or any other politician. Observation number five, Jesus showed no signs of being starstruck by Herod or any other politician. Observation number six, Jesus unabashedly referred to Herod by a term that clearly denotes criticism of Herod's character. Observation number seven, Jesus did not regard the criticism of politicians as ungodly, disrespectful, ungrateful, entitled, or whiny. Observation number eight, Jesus treated Herod's agenda and threats as if they were irrelevant to his own purpose and power. Apart from treating the actions of politicians as mere pawns on his own chessboard, Jesus invents none of the symptoms of those who obsess over every decision made by those with political clout. I thought that was a very brilliant piece, those, those eight observations from that little verse. Um, small little verse, and I think the New Testament is full of these. It's, it doesn't, the New Testament nowhere lays out some sort of political philosophy that Christians ought to have. But in those small verses, like where they're all crying for Jesus to be their savior in a very political sense, and Jesus weeps and says, if only you knew the things that make for peace. You know, all the, the times when Jesus um, does not challenge the authority, you know, you, I think you mentioned this in the, in the post, you know, and they're, they're trying, are you, a, are you a political threat, basically? And he's like, no, no, no my kingdom's not from this world. I, I couldn't give two, you know, <laughs> two craps about your little political battles. Very, very powerful observations, and I think they have a lot of great implications, not only for Christians, but I think people of influence, people who want to live free, people who want to be powerful, who want to be leaders, mm -hmm. to free themselves from the myth of political authority. This idea, and it's, and it's entirely a belief. Mises has this great quote that he says, every government, no matter how despotic, no matter how authoritarian, whether it's democratic or totalitarian, every government ultimately rests 
on the consent of the governed. Not necessarily consent, but willingness to tolerate what's happening. Because there's always more people than there are rulers and political class. So, so authority is a belief. The belief that there is legitimacy behind political authority. And legitimacy can mean anything from you need to obey it to be morally good, to you need to actually respect it, you need to actively participate in whatever the political processes and ceremonies and charades are. There's kind of a spectrum, but all of those, any attitude that goes further than I'll break the law when it's convenient and I won't break it when it's inconvenient based on my own determination of costs and benefits, and but there's nothing moral involved, I have no obligation. Anything that goes further than that is a complete buy-in to the myth of political authority, and that's what you're addressing. And the first comment uh, when, I, when I think when I shared this was something like, yeah, but the Bible also says to respect authority. So I want, I want to talk about that, TK. What is your take? Because a lot of people will say, yeah, 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 all that's fine if I'm imagining Hitler. If I'm imagining Hitler, then all those things, yeah, don't just do what political authorities say because there's a higher morality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they get scared because they're like, well, if political authority has no inherent moral value – then what does that mean? Would society fall apart? Well, certainly, certainly it's best to just assume that authority should be obeyed unless there's a compelling reason not to. Or, you know, I think it kind of worries people. What is your take on the question of authority? Yeah, so, you know, when the Bible talks about authority, uh, it doesn't talk about it in, in the sense that we often use it when speaking of government, where we, we give some entity or a, a monopoly on violence, or we look at some entity as uh, abiding by a moral code that we don't have, that, that, we're, that we don't abide by, or not having to abide by a moral code or having double standards when we think of them. I, I, I don't think the Bible means anything uh, of the sort. Um, I, I also think it's interesting that um, to talk about honoring authority, I thought I think it's interesting to talk about what that doesn't mean, because Jesus used the word fox to refer to King Herod. And it might be easy to import our modern understanding of language on onto what was being said there. But Jesus thought, was not just Herod saying was a, was a good looking woman. Right, right, right. He's not saying that. He's not saying, hey, he's just a sly kind of guy. I mean, in, in the Israelite holiness code, a fox was an unclean animal. And, and this was a flat out insight. I mean, you're not a, a flat out insult. You're not going to find any Bible commentator or scholar who just dismisses that word fox. It's just Jesus some casual term. The, Jesus also called the religious authorities uh, a brood of vipers. Or no, wait, was that John the Baptist? I think that was John the Baptist, which is my favorite, yeah. my favorite phrase ever. Well, I, I mean, even saying something like "ye are of your father the devil," you know, um, that's that's <laughs> not a, a nice little bit thing. insulting. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, I'm I'm always interested in observing people who talk about respecting authority, um, especially when they bring it up in the context of politics. I'm always interested in seeing the sorts of things they allow themselves to say when someone you know gets an office that they don't like, you know, um, w whether it's Obama or Trump, you know. Um, most people have expressed some kind of disagreement. Respecting and honoring authority, whatever it means from a biblical point of view, does not and cannot mean that you refrain from 
making value judgments about the decisions they make or the things they say. But more importantly, I, I, I'll let you, cut, you you talk about the philosophical political side. I actually want to talk about a very important spiritual component of authority, because if you want to talk about honoring and respecting authority and you want to talk about that from the from a biblical point of view, I say let's go over to Luke 10 and 19, because there's a very important Bible verse on authority that often gets ignored. And I rarely hear anybody defend this when they talk about honoring and respecting authority. Here, Jesus is speaking to his followers and he says, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So if you want to talk about respecting and honoring authority and obeying the Bible's command that we do that, then that means you have to respect the authority that you have. And you have to respect that authority so much that you believe what Jesus says about that authority, that nothing shall trample you, nothing shall harm you, that you have authority over the enemy. That is completely inconsistent with this commonplace contemporary practice among many, not all, many Christians who treat politicians in a way that Jesus never treated Herod, which is he is a threat to their well-being, that their power is dependent upon his permission, that they can't fulfill their purpose in life without that person behaving in a certain sort of way. Um, this biblical notion of authority that Jesus promises his believers is completely inconsistent with living in fear because of who the president is or treating your purpose in life as if it is somehow compromised or as if you can't create massive change unless you have the quote unquote right guy in office. So that's the concept of authority that I like to focus on. You can't do it, can you? Can't do what? You can't just pronounce a name in the way that everyone's always pronounced it. What did I say? What did I it's say? Just like that Key and Peele sketch, <laughs> where he's like, "Hey, hey, wrong." Is a a wrong? Jaquelin. Uh, you mean Jacqueline? Don't wait, 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 wait. What did I say? What did I say? It, okay, it's Herod. Just Herod. Everyone says Herod. Hey, I didn't say Herod. You said well, Herod. <laughs> yes. Hey, Rod. It sounds like a Rod from the Yankees. Dude, uh, it's dude, so much cooler, though. And then I immediately, like, yeah, the minute you say it, I start like getting insecure and be like, maybe I'm not doing it right. That sounds cooler. Um, you, you, you know what? I think I found the explanation for why God put that in the DNA of black people to do that kind of thing, because it makes for better sermons. Like, think about it. If I say something like, um, you got to trust God, not Herod, it just makes for a good totally, sermon. Yeah. If it's like, <laughs> right? you must trust the Lord instead of King Herod versus are you going to trust in God or Herod? Amen. <laughs> like, I just want to scream amen immediately. <laughs> there you go, man. Yeah. There you go. That's beautiful. Um, that is, that is a, such a powerful concept that the the idea of authority is a powerful idea. In fact, I'm not advocating – when I say the myth of political authority, whatever, I'm not advocating a demotion of the concept of authority to less importance. I'm advocating a promotion of the concept of authority, that authority is so powerful and so important. The idea of – Something that you must obey at all costs is a valid and true idea, and it is too valid and true to, to demote it to the level of political authorities or other people, anyone outside of yourself, ultimately recognizing the power of your own authority as the creator of your own story, the power that has been put in you, whether by God or if you don't believe in God, by the fact that you are here, you have emerged somehow, that ultimate authority rests with you. That is not a choice. That is, that is an inescapable truth. 
and you can try to hide from it and you can try to outsource that to others, but it will always come at the cost of your own happiness and freedom and true fulfillment, your own self-actualization, even if it occasionally comes with, you know, earthly benefits like, hey, you know, let me control you and I will give you shelter and food and security. Um, those things are so much less important once you sort of realize than, than being a free agent and a free person. And authority is too valuable to, to hand off to anyone else. That's really powerful. I like that you, you brought it back to that other scripture verse. And also, man, there are degrees of authority. And you never just have one authority figure in your life. There are multiple authorities and authority figures uh, disagree, right? So some some authorities trump others. Um, so the real question is not um, who are my authorities, but what is the highest form of authority and what do I do when other forms of authority contradict that which is the highest form? You know, truth is a kind of authority, right? Um, you know, so I, I, I think this notion of honoring authority Whatever it means, it cannot mean that you compromise that which has demonstrated itself to be the highest form of authority out of a uh, fear or respect or lip service to someone who has some sort of fancy title. And I think that it's never it's never actually the case that anyone is obeying something external to themselves. That's just something we tell ourselves to get off the hook and escape accountability and reserve the right to uh, be the victim or not be responsible because if you say, I was just following orders, or I have to follow authority, I have to obey the law, whatever, that's you choosing to abide by that particular standard. That's you choosing to say, the law is going to be the thing I listen to. And whatever the law says, it's no longer the law's fault that you did it. It's your own choice. It doesn't mean it's an easy choice if someone's like, you know, truth or death. You may say, I choose, you know, whatever, uh, tell, you know, whatever, tell a lie or die. I may choose, oh, there we go. Tell a lie or you shall die. You, <laughs> That's it, dude. You may say, I'm going to tell a lie to save my life. And, and I'm not going to tell you that, like, you should have, you shouldn't have. But you can't pretend at an ultimate level like it just happened to me. You had a choice. And understanding that at the end of the day, if you are just following orders, you're the one who chose to elevate orders to the level of, you know, most important thing in the world. Um, that's your choice. You're still following your own authority. So you might as well be honest about it and transparent about it and get to know yourself enough to know what really do you think is right? What really do you want to do? Because at the end of the day, no one but you will answer for it. I think that's really important. Um, my, my man, Chuck Grimmett, put up a, a tweet on Election Day. And uh, he said, everyone on both sides pinning their hope on this election made a grave mistake. You are more important to the future than Clinton or Trump. Now, if you don't believe in the Bible and you're not a Christian and you reject all of this kind of talk as spiritual woo-woo, I can totally see how you can look at Chuck's words and be like, oh, that's just naive fairy tale kind of thinking. But if you refer to yourself as someone who believes in the biblical conception of authority – and you take seriously Jesus's words to the believer, the life that he lived and the things that the Bible has to say about where power truly begins. You can't help but believe something like this. There's nothing biblical whatsoever of waking up in the morning and being afraid for your life or being afraid for the fate of the world because of who happens to be the president. I mean, do we not are we not referring to the same Bible? where God was willing to save an entire city because of the righteousness of one man 
what has happened to the respect that we have for our own power, our own ability to create massive change without permission? What has happened to that boldness that's willing to stand in the face of a pharaoh and say, this is how it's going to go down, whether you like it or not, because I'm connected to a source of power that's bigger than you and your title? I want to see that boldness come back. Hey, I agree with all of that, except this next senatorial election is different. Right, right. It's different, man. <laughs> that's all That's all true and good, TK, under normal circumstances. But the, <laughs> the age that we live in is not a normal age. Um, find me one that is, right? Hey, uh, speaking of all this, you know, personal authority, self-ownership, self-responsibility, there was a phenomenal article on FEE.org, FEE.org by Dan Sanchez called the title was something like self-discipline or self-improvement requires selfishness or more selfishness. And it was basically on obedience versus self-discipline. And this is, this is an excellent article that this really kind of sums up a lot of what we're about here on the podcast. It sums up in many ways, kind of the praxis philosophy. One of the first things that we try to impart and try to tease out of these amazing young people is there are no rules. There are no authorities. You're not any of the things you're doing, building your portfolio project, doing your PDPs. You're not doing these for us to get a grade. And if you are, stop doing them and find something that you're doing for you. Like any good coach, our coaches, they want the participants to, to commit to something, not to just say, okay, I'll do that. They want them to be like, I want to do this. I'm choosing to do this. And it's me for my purposes and my goals. So I'm accountable to it. Um, and that's hugely important. And Dan's article really, really gets into that. And he, and he talks about how often it is that we set goals for ourselves. I'm going to work out, you know, five days a week, or I'm going to uh, read this many books or do this or do that. And then we start slacking and then we feel really bad about slacking and this cycle sort of repeats. Mm -hmm. And he says, rather than looking at it as I just need better techniques and better tools and I'm not disciplined enough, I need to find out how to be more disciplined and getting all strategic about it. You need to go a little level deeper and ask yourself why, like really ask yourself why, why am I doing this in the first place? Why did I decide that, you know, exercising five days a week was the thing to do? Is it really because that's what I truly want to do? Or is it because I think that will make me look cool? Or that's what my friend does and so I want him to think that I have the same amount of discipline? Or because I want to have great you know, biceps uh, because people will like me? Because if it's any of those other things, that's not necessarily bad, it's not a moralistic thing, but you're, you're not likely to succeed if the motivation comes from anything else, even if it comes from obedience to an imagined standard or prestige or something external to yourself. And you can contrast this when you're a child to things that you worked your butt off for because you wanted to versus things that you worked on, whether hard or not, because you had to. When kids are playing, they're working their butt off most of the time. They're frustrated. They're stressed. They're, yes. they're, you know, I mean, I've said this many, many times. Video games are a great example. Like you're so mad that you can't beat the level and you don't want to keep playing it. You're tired. You're hungry. You want to stop and take a break. Your eyes are bugged out, but you can't stop until you beat it. And you're working hard, but it's motivated by you. In fact, you're working hard. You want it to be done. 
And it's so motivated by you that you're actually willing to put up with all the people around you saying, stop it, stop working. So you're, you're incurring the additional cost of being nagged by your mother or your sibling who wants to use the TV or whatever else. You're willing to tolerate tons of suffering because it's internally motivated versus doing your homework or whatever else just because someone said. And I think even though we graduate from these institutions that are full of people telling us what to do and dictating our days, we take the mindset with us. And we have imaginary proxies for those. We read articles about the ketogenic diet and it's a big trend, paleo, whatever. And so we basically, in some subtle way, subconsciously associate things I ought to do with that. And then we start trying to do that diet because we're responding to, we're obeying things I ought to do, just like we did our homework. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you you bringing up the keto diet because you saw me eating Cheetos last week? Is that what this is about? No, not at all, because your (laughs) your weird pretend vegetarian diet is, (laughs) I I don't know, there's like, I mean, I got to at least respect you for, for doing it for like genuine motivations, because there's no... There's no possible health person on the world that would endorse your diet. So I know you're not doing it to obey some <laughs> external standard because it's, it's really doesn't. But I think that we, I think that creeps in even when we don't think it is. Oh, well, I don't have a boss. No one's telling me what to do anymore. I don't have a school teacher. My parents don't tell me what to do anymore, but we often create like, I'm going to be someone who gets up early, not because I'm genuinely motivated to the way that you're motivated to beat that level on a video game, but because you're obeying now, an imagined authority, a proxy for that teacher or parent when you were a kid that says good people do this. And then you're going to start to resent that good people do that and that you have to do that to be good because you got your, you're getting your idea of what's good from external sources. So anyway, I recommend reading the article, but I thought that was a very powerful distinction that even when we're out of an environment with an explicit human authority, we often obey imagined authorities outside of ourselves. And this is the cause of tension and stress and shame and guilt when we don't meet our goals because the goals themselves weren't our actual goals. You know, even in the practice program, we explicitly remind our participants all the time that we are willing to customize the curriculum experience to suit their goals, that they are free to challenge anything and their advisor will work with them on making sure. In fact, they should demand value from us. They should wrestle us to the ground. Like Jacob wrestled an angel and say, you're not leaving until you bless me, right? Praxis. You are not getting away until you deliver value on my terms. That's how we want them to approach it. But but even in spite of that, it's one of the more difficult things to do. Our participants will tell you it is an extremely difficult thing to do. Uh, So I I recently had a session with one of our participants, and it turns out that she was struggling to get some of her curriculum work done. And the struggle had been persisting for at least a few weeks. And I I said, well, what's going on? Are are you biting off more than you can chew? Is there something you'd rather be doing? And she says, no, this is what I this is what I really want to do. I just need to to focus a little more and try a little harder. And and I said, usually that's the wrong answer when you say I just need to focus a little harder and and try more. Um, Are are you sure this is what you really want to be doing? And she's like, oh, yeah, I think it's really good. I think it's a good thing for me to do. I said, I, I know it's a good thing for you That's to do. That's a danger word. I think it's yeah, yeah, good yeah. for me, the way that your parents think that, you know, studying algebra yeah. is good for you. Yeah, yeah. I said, I, I know it's a good thing, and, and you'll get a lot of value out of it. But what would you do if you could do anything right now, if you weren't thinking about the curriculum? 
And she had no problem answering that question. She had no problem rattling off a ton of details. And you could see her eyes light up. You could see her smile. You could see just her talk with enthusiasm. And I said, let's do that instead. And and she was hesitant. She liked the idea, but she says, well, I mean, is that okay? Can I do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, that's preferable, right? Because that's what you're going to be good at. That's what you're going to enjoy. You're going to get maximum value out of it instead of doing something because you think this is what we want. So I would say even in an, in an environment where you're constantly telling people that that's okay to do, we've had this permission-based authoritarian mindset so ingrained, so ingrained in our thinking that it's extremely difficult to do. This is why – in that article, Dan says, to achieve true self-discipline, you need an exorcism. I love the way he puts that. Mm. He says, you have to exercise the ghost of past taskmasters that are hunting your psyche. Your life's endeavors need to oh, become truly and deeply about you. because it's alliterative, yeah. too. You need yeah. to exercise the ghost of past taskmasters. That sounds like uh, that, that great Lauren Hill song from her Unplugged album where she's like uh, – she's like – Bastards and mass confusion, masters and mass illusion, or something like that. Well, great, great bachelors line. of past confusion, ma uh, masters of delusion, something. masters yeah, yeah. of mass delusion. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exercise your past task masters. Oh, I like that, Dan. Good, good job. Well written article. Yeah, it is amazing how much we get that. Just continuing to ask that why question. You know, even people who apply to the program, it's very, very common for them to be like, hey. They, they start off with a question, whether it's on the, the Chatra, you know, web chat on our website or through a call or an email. Hey, the program looks pretty cool, but I'm interested in health. Do you have anything in health? Or I'm interested in law. Do you have anything in law? And that mindset is the mindset that you sort of have in school, which is you pick a major. You got to know when you're like seven years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you're like, uh, I guess I have to map what I think I'm good at onto some career. You know, oh, I'm good at arguing. I better pick law, right? And I have this whole article about that. Why stop telling good arguers to become lawyers? And so they come in with this mindset that like it's a career track and they need to know if Praxis will help them get that particular job. And well, I don't even come close to pretending Praxis is good for everyone. It's not. It's not good for most people. It, it is very hard and it requires a – it doesn't require any specific industry or skill set that we focus on so much as a mindset. You either have the Praxis mindset or you don't. Um, and so it, it's it's for you if you do. It's not if you don't. But I don't pretend like it's, it's a fit for everybody, but I always know when someone comes in and says, do you have anything in sports medicine? Do you have anything in hospitality? Do you have – that's never what they're actually asking because it would be easy to say, uh, no, we don't, we don't really focus on those careers or those industries or to go the other way and say, well, we have so many business partners. I'm sure we could find something for you there, but neither of those are correct because that's not what they're asking. Instead, it, we usually have to respond with, what makes you interested in law? And inevitably – there's no exposure to law. There's no actual knowledge of doing merger and acquisition paperwork or studying, you know, various uh, subsections of laws or all the things that happen in law. It's something like, well, you know, I grew up in a poor neighborhood and I saw people who had, you know, faced legal troubles that they couldn't afford. And I'd like to help poor people be able to have access to you know, good legal counsel so they don't get ripped off or something. Okay, why do you like that? Because I want to help people who don't have very good information that give, that makes them feel powerless in certain situations improve their information. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting – you want that. Now you have no idea if law is actually the best way to do that. The odds that it are are actually incredibly, incredibly low given the, the structure of law school and everything else that happens. And when you phrase it as people with – 
you know, lack of information that can make them feel disempowered in certain situations, how many ways are there to change that? How many apps or websites could be built to do that? How many, like being a counselor, a coach, being, I mean, there's so many things that can address that core interest. And once you get down to that, now you say, okay, okay, now let's figure out what do you really want to do to move closer to that? What skills could you develop? What kind of self-exploration? And let's put it on you. You're the owner of this. It's up to you to live out that vision of helping people get access to information instead of this outsourced mindset that is, well, that's what I want. Everyone tells me that's law. Therefore, law is going to do the thing for me. And if I go into law school and it doesn't work out, I can always blame law school for failing to do what it was supposed to do or blame advisors for telling me to do something that ended up not leading me to what I wanted, guidance counselors or whatever. I've always got an out because I never got enough self-knowledge to make a really clear choice or to pursue things. I've, I've artificially narrowed it down because people external to me, voices outside of me, we're saying that I should, and so I was following those. So just getting people to get in touch with the real why. Do you really want this? What is it you really want? You're, that's a proxy for what you want. Why do you think that proxy is accurate? Who told you? Who told you that law would help you do that? Do they really know? Do you know? Why don't you try it for a little bit? That's just really hard work. And this goes back to the question we began with. You take that person who is who says they want to major in law, they know what they want. They know that they love to argue. They love to analyze concepts. They love to defend positions. They are not in the dark about that. But somewhere along the way, they lost the distinction between their desire and the methodology. And, and, and they conflated those two. And so they've equated loving arguing with going into law. And that person is the product of a world that's that's constantly telling us you don't have permission to want what you want unless there is a clear, secure, pre-existing, predictable path totally that can take you from everyone. A to B. Yeah, prestigious yep. enough, unless there's a, a easy way for us to map that into one of the socially acceptable areas you you don't have permission to have those desires. Yeah, like get turn those desires into some to a respectable career ASAP uh, because otherwise they're a threat, they're a danger. You know, they're too unpredictable. And, and this is why instead of you know trying to change a person's what you want to get them talking about their why because I, I truly believe once we recover the lost art of indulging and taking ownership of desire, we'll begin to understand more about how to create our own unique path. And Neville Goddard said, desire is the prophecy of its own fulfillment. Another quote that I love by George Washington Carver and the man who spoke with flowers, he says, when you love something deeply enough, it will tell you its secrets. Take ownership of what you really want, even if you don't know how to get from point A to point B, you know, by I start with why and the how will organically unfold from that ownership. All right. Totally random tidbit before we wrap up. I love coming up with these heuristics or like rules of thumb or correlations mm -hmm. that I observe. And the more, the more shoot from the hip, the more chance they have to be inaccurate and have people that say, but that's not true of me. That offends me. The more fun I think they are. So I came yeah, up yeah. with a new one today. I, I don't know what made me think of this. I think maybe I'd taken a shower and I was, getting on my uh, my standard issue uniform for the day, which is jeans and a Praxis t-shirt. Um, and I thought, and I've, and I've had Jeff for like three years, I had a job where I had to wear a suit literally every day. Uh, incidentally, it was working in the state mm -hmm. legislature. So I thought, here's my, here's my new correlation. I think there might be a correlation between the percentage of time that you wear a suit and the probability that you're making the world a worse place. 
<laughs> I'm pretty sure there's a direct correlation. Now, I'm sure there are exceptions. There's probably some very kind people in the financial world, for example, who are doing things that are actually really benefiting and increasing access to capital. I'm sure there's – but when I think about who are the – what are the professions where every day you wear a suit? It's like political, lobbying, public interest, BS, law – I think there's a correlation between percentage of days that you wear a suit and the probability that you're making the world a worse place. So uh, <laughs> everyone sit on that. I'm curious. I got a quick question for you. As a customer, is there any kind of uh, service that you're more likely to trust if the person delivering it is wearing a suit? None. Zero. <laughs> I, I, they just look like ridiculous clown costumes. <laughs> and the necktie is a literal symbol of servitude and, uh, you know, the noose of, yeah, I, I, uh, uh, as my friend Phil Magnus said, he, he calls suits Burkean attire, uh, and it's his dig it. He doesn't like, um, Edmund Burke, who actually has a lot of interesting, I think, powerful philosophies, but he's got, he's got reasons for disliking that Burkean conservatism, that slavish devotion to tradition and order and staying in your place is sort of how he uh, how he represents it. I think it's pretty funny. So um, there's my correlation for the day. And somebody can come back and be like, look, here are all these reasons you're wrong, all of the best, blah, blah, blah. And I could absolutely be wrong, but it's but I think it's a fun one to uh, to use in it. And it makes me feel happy every day that I don't have to wear a suit after several years of wearing a suit. And um, that was one of the big things that helped me realize how much I hated that and wanted to get out of that world. It was like, wait a minute, any job where I literally have to wear a suit to be like to do my job? There's something wrong here. Um, TK, <laughs> recommendations for this week? I'm going to go with the book that Levi Morehouse gave me just a few days ago, Start With Why, Simon Sinek. And I'm going to go with a podcast. My good friend Jeff Till, 500 Years is the name of the podcast. Five, Jeff Till's 500 Years. Um, you can also find it at 500years.org. And he does fewer episodes. He kind of does them sporadically, but he puts a ton of time into the production values and everything. They're really good. He just has a, a new one that's very – he hold, holds back nothing. It's very uh, sort of edgy, some not safe for work language, but um, a really good one on uh, public schooling. So Jeff Till's 500 Years. TK? It's been fun. It's wait, it's been real. It's been it's fun. Been real. It's been real fun, right? There you go, man. <laughs> Peace out from the hive. Peace. you're a fan of the show do me a huge favor go to itunes give it a rating or review a rating is only a simple click of a button or if you're on your phone a tap of a finger and it will help people find the show a lot easier and if you have a little extra time write a review what you think about the show honest opinion that stuff goes a long way in giving more exposure to the podcast. What do you get out of all of it? You get the pleasure of knowing that as more people start listening, you get to say, I was there first. 